Well, good morning again, everybody, and happy Easter to all of you. He is risen. So um, this morning, uh, I'd like to begin by reading a wonderful Easter passage in 1 Corinthians, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Paul really makes clear uh, how the, the resurrection is really the linchpin of everything that you and I as, as Jesus followers um, hope for. So he says this, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Paul is talking there about Christian hope. Hope, hope is something that we all need in order to be able to live. We cannot live in a permanent state of hopelessness without hope. So during this time when our normal way of life has been taken from us, what do you and I hope for? Well, maybe that's an obvious question, isn't it? We hope for a return to normality, something resembling normal. We might hope for something simple, like being able to eat out in a restaurant without second-guessing ourselves. Perhaps we hope to be able to gather in each other's homes, something radical as that. Or perhaps we hope that we'll one day uh, be able to meet together again on a Sunday morning in a large group. We hope, and we hope. What if we were refugees? What would you and I hope for then? I think we would end up hoping for the very luxuries that you and I have been able to enjoy this entire time. We would hope that one day we would be able to live in our own home. Oh, not our original home, perhaps, but a place where we could close the door behind us and call it our own. We would hope that one day there would be an end to the violence and hostilities and the bloodshed and the death. And we would hope that one day we would be able to maybe return home before we die to see our own country, to see our homeland, where we grew up, where we were raised that familiar, old familiar place. We hope and we hope. For us, it seems that hope is just around the corner. For the refugee, perhaps hope seems more fragile and more uncertain somehow. And perhaps hope seems to lie in the more distant future. Nevertheless, we all need hope to live. We cannot live in a permanent state of hopelessness, we cannot live without hope. 
and it is hope that helps all of us face the day. And so we hope, and we hope. This morning we celebrate Easter. It is the center of Christian hope, the, the gravitational center of Christian hope. So to talk about Easter, to celebrate Easter, to think about Easter is to celebrate the, the, the ultimate Christian hope. So as we think about it and celebrate it and talk about it today, I, I think it'd be helpful to recognize that there are at least two different ways that people have tended to talk about Christian hope. Two different ways. One of those ways, hope finds its distinctive, definitive shape around the physical, historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other way of talking about hope, the hope, the resurrection is sort of used to prop up hope and, and support hope in some way, but the shape of the, the hope itself doesn't find its definitive shape around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, there is this definitively, distinctively resurrection-shaped hope. And then there is this other way of talking about Christian hope, where Christian hope and the resurrection of Jesus are, are sort of tangentially related. They may run parallel to each other. They're connected in some way, vague shape or form, but it's not entirely clear how or why, perhaps. They're tangentially related. So this morning, what I'd like to do is to compare these two different ways of talking about Christian hope. And I want to make crystal clear what Christian hope is really all about. That's my ambition for this morning. And I want to use an analogy which I use, I think it's just over three years ago now, and, and many of you said that you found it, or several of you who were there at the time said you, you found it very helpful, and, and I hope that this will be helpful again this morning. Now, I'll, I'll try not to push this analogy too far, because of course, every analogy breaks down somewhere along the, the line, but uh, let's see how far we can take it. So I think most of you have been to our apartment before, you know, our apartment here on Manhattan Avenue. And some of you will know the story of our apartment building. The only reason why I know the story is because I got into the elevator one day and I got chatting with this guy next to me. And uh, he, he, he turned out to be the guy who developed and refurbished our entire building. He was in charge of that, that project. And so he started telling me sort of some of the history and story of this, this building. And he said that just a couple of years earlier, which is now, we're going back eight years now, but eight years ago, he, he said, this building was falling apart. You could literally see the floor through the ceiling. Um, it, it was just coming undone. Uh, he said, which, which apartment are you, you living in? I said, oh, we're in uh, apartment 7G. He said, oh, he said, that, that whole side of the building, that you couldn't even get to that. That was entirely boarded up. Um, and he said there were people, homeless people, climbing into the building to light fires to keep themselves warm in, inside the building. There were eight different families who had been living in this building, and the building, of course, wasn't like that when they moved in decades ago, but then it had started to crumble around them so that by the time, year, decades later, they found themselves living in these squalid conditions. I remember talking to another neighbor on our floor in uh, 7A, Dolores, and she was telling me that during Hurricane Sandy, she spent most of the night on her knees. 
praying that the masonry that was loose above their apartment wasn't going to come crashing in through the already fragile, brittle roof. It was terrible. It was terrible. Can't imagine living in those conditions. And so what do you do when you come across a building like that, which seems to be rotting from the inside out, crumbling around you? Well, of course, one option is demolition, tear it down. Many, many, many Christians have looked around them at the world around them. They've looked at the world the way it is. They looked at, at human beings the way it is. I used to look at it this way too, as a Christian. I used to look at it this way and, and think, well, I've said the same thing. Look, look at how bad things are. Look, look at, look at uh, how the world is coming apart. Look how it's coming undone at the seams. So, so what else can we do? It's, it's demolition. Look at COVID, look at wars, look at refugees, look at people trafficking, look at global warming, look at the death and carnage and destruction. What hope is there? This is irreparable. And so, yes, demolition. One day God will come and demolish this place. He will write a match and throw it on the building and it will burn down or something. Now, there is some good news in this scenario. The good news is that one day God is going to rescue a few people out of this burning building. Before he pushes a plunger, before he throws on the match, a few people will be rescued. I have talked to countless people, and by that I mean I've literally lost count of the number of Christians. Even in, in the recent weeks, I've had these kinds of conversations where people have said, well, this, this is the, the definitive Christian hope. This is how the, 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 the fundamental shape of Christian hope. Well, seeing as this is such a broad and widespread view of things, I think it would be helpful just to spend a little longer reflecting on what this would mean. If this was actually the fundamental shape of Christian hope, what would it actually mean? I want to point out a couple of things here. Just two things. First of all, it's interesting because the same people who insist, as I used to insist, that yes, this is this is the this building is wired, God has wired this building for demolition. The same people who insist on that are the same people who continue to insist that God has in fact defeated death and decay in this world. I don't know if you can feel the tension there already. God has defeated death in this world, but uh, at the same time, we're, God has wired this world for demolition. Perhaps you can feel the tension there. I can't help thinking that in the context of this story, this is rather like someone lighting a match, throwing it on the building and watching the building burn down to the ground into ashes and then dancing on the ashes of the building saying, I've won, I've won, I've defeated the, the rot and decay of this building. Come and see, you will not find any rot and decay of this building anywhere. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Well, yes, technically, I suppose they wouldn't be wrong, would they? Uh, the rot and decay would be gone, but then again, so would the building. And anyone watching this scene of this God dancing on the ashes of his own creation would be forgiven for thinking that this was a supremely cynical rather dark moment. A second issue here, 
When Christian hope and expectation is spoken of in these terms, it actually becomes really, really difficult to distinguish between that view of things to come and the atheist view of expectation and view of things to come. It's very difficult to distinguish between the two because human history and natural history, I mean, just think of the many stories and histories that that, that this long chain of of humanity that that has been living here on earth, this this long human story, and then this even longer natural history out of which human history grows. And, And in both scenarios, human history and natural history are hurtling towards this great big ultimate nowhere. This great big ultimate nothing. But is that really? Is that really what the New Testament writers mean when they talk about God defeating death and evil? Is that really what the New Testament writers mean when they talk about about the resurrection, when they talk about hope? Does it really amount to God snatching a few people from the burning building? Is it like someone going around the burning building, going around the crumbling building, putting up posters on the walls and saying this building is state of demolition pack your stuff ship out your your furniture get ready because this this building is slated for demolition this morning i'm not intending to convince anyone of christian hope i just want to make clear what christian hope is really all about because before i can say i believe this i believe this with my whole heart or no way, I, I don't believe that because my head won't accept or my heart, my heart won't believe what my head is rejecting. And I just can't intellectually wrap my head around this. I, I believe this, I don't believe this. Well, before we can say something like, yes, all my hope is wrapped up in this, absolutely. Or no, my, 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 I, I don't have a Christian hope. I don't dare to hope for what Christians hope for. Before we can say any of that and make that kind of call, it would be good to know that we're all on the same page and we're actually talking about the same thing. And, and so my point is that I'm not sure anything that I've said so far this morning resembles Christian hope the way that the New Testament authors spoke about Christian hope. So, you know, our building had been a beautiful old building. It's, it, it was built in 1920. So last year was a centenary. Um, we couldn't celebrate it, of course, for obvious reasons. Uh, but it was, uh, yeah, it's 101 years old this year. Amazing. And even, even when it was falling apart, even when it was in such a dilapidated state of ruin and disrepair, um, it still had these very beautiful elements. Like from the outside, the face of this building, I mean, you, you, you've walked up to our building many times. You've, most of you have seen it. It's this beautiful stone facade on the outside. And on the inside, even though everything was crumbling, there was still this beautiful marble and wrought iron staircase that went all the way to the top. And, and these lovely uh, open face uh, brick, brick walls like Brandon and Charity have behind them. And, uh, and so it was just this, yeah, it, it, this, it, it, despite the ruin, there were these remnants of, of, of former glory, that there were these aspects of, of the beautiful design and all the ruin that still shone through. Something of the architect, architect's artistic vision was still present. It was still very much there, despite the dilapidation. The fundamental vision was still there. And so because, because of that, instead of sort of tearing the whole thing down, 
the structure, the skeletal structure was still fundamentally sound. There were still these bits of beauty. So they decided instead of demolition, they would refurbish. And what happened is the city, which owned the building, sold the building to a developer for $1.7 million, which is ridiculous, obviously. I mean, 50 units for 1.7 million. You couldn't buy one of these apartments, single one of these apartments for that. Well, uh, pre-COVID anyway, I don't know what, 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 it's, what it's worth now. You can, it, it, incredible. But it did come with stipulations. The first one was that it had to be limited income housing. The second one was that it had to be rent stabilized. And the third one, and I think this was best of all, and I think relates to what we're talking about this morning, is that the people living in this building uh, were not kicked out. They, they were not set. This is what makes gentrification so painful, right? People who've lived for decades in one place, it's their home, it's their neighborhood, and suddenly they can't afford to live there and they move on to somewhere else. But that's not what happened here. They were temporarily rehoused. They were temporarily temporarily rehoused it's interesting when jesus talks to his disciples in the gospel of john and he and he says that uh, you you cannot go where i'm going but one day you you know i'm going to prepare a place for you that the place that he talks about is actually a temporary dwelling so these people were temporarily rehoused and then they were allowed to move back in when the refurbishment was over and they were allowed they could buy their apartment and you think well okay that's that's not very generous who, who can buy their apartment who's got 1.7 million dollars in their back pocket I don't know if any of you do. Maybe you do, but most people don't. Who's got that kind of money, right? But but these people were able to buy their apartment for a single dollar, which is wonderful. I think that that's just a wonderful way of doing gentrification. Ah, oh, man, I wish that's how it was always done. And so they started renovation. Can you imagine? Can you imagine when that first building, that first apartment was complete? I mean, finished, every nail in place, everything in its proper place. And so you come and the, the architect or, the, or the, the person in charge of the, the refurbishment opens the door. They say, no, you open. it's like one of those TV shows, right? The, they say, no, you open the door. And so you get to push that door open slowly and you walk inside and you sort of, because you've seen what it was before, you lived in it for so long in those ruin and dilapidation. So you see it and it's beautiful the floors, the ceiling, the walls, it's all brand new. Every fixture is sparkling and shiny and, and everything is just aesthetically pleasing. It looks beautiful. And then they turn to you and they say, you see this? This is how it's going to be. I mean, this whole building is going to look like this. And so if you like, the resurrection of Jesus is like that first renovation. It's not that renovation of that first apartment is not an odd event in that building, but it is the first, the beginning of the renovation of the entire building. It's the beginning of the renovation of the entire building. So as I've quoted N.T. Wright many times here at this point, and I, and I want to again, uh, he says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an odd random event in the world as it has always been. That reading we had at the beginning in the Gospel of Mark, where the women run into Jesus, and at first, you know, they think he's the gardener, and, and, they, and they, they're just stunned. They don't really know. He says, go and tell. Go and tell the disciples what has happened. And, and they're left wondering. what They're a little frightened by this event. And it is this odd, random, strange happening, this strange event in this violent, decrepit, same old, same old world. But no, as they had time to reflect, they discovered 
that this was not an odd event in the world the way it has always been, but it is the beginning, the foundation of a new world, the way the world is one day going to be. And so I'm going to say something which I start, try to say at, le at least once a year, every time we talk about resurrection, whether at Easter or some other time when we're talking about resurrection. And that is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes the, the gravitational center of Christian hope. The Christian hope revolves around the physical, historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we hear God's promise. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we hear God's greatest invitation. We hear the promise, and the promise is this. You see this resurrected Jesus. You thought he was dead and in the grave, and, and he suffered humiliation and defeat and decay, but I have redeemed him. I have vindicated him. I have raised him from the dead. I've redeemed his life from the pit. And what I have done for Jesus, I am going to do for the rest of my creation. This is what I want. This is what I have in store for humanity. This is my future plan. This is the shape of, look at Jesus. This is, everyone has an idea of how humanity should be shaped. And we all have an idea of how the world should be run. But God says, no, it's going to be run like this. This is the humanity I stand by. This is the humanity I vindicate. Look at the resurrected Jesus. This is the shape of things to come. The future I have in store. That is the promise. And in the resurrection, we hear a wonderful invitation to participate in the refurbishment project. We're invited not to live in this world as if we were about to leave it and quit it and abandon it any old moment because you know what? God's already given up on it. He's abandoned it. Nice try. He tried and tried again. Didn't work. So you can't beat him, join him. Let's burn the place down. No, 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 no. That's not how that story goes. We're invited to live not as if we're about to abandon the world because we think God has abandoned the world, but we're invited to live in this world as if it really counted because we know what God has in store because we've seen it in the resurrected Jesus. Just last week, I spoke to a friend who felt that she had shared the Christian hope with the person that she loves the most and cares about the most, a very best friend in the entire world. And she felt she'd shared the good news, the center of Christian hope with this friend. But as we started to talk, it began to dawn on her that she hadn't actually mentioned the resurrection of Jesus Christ once, not a single time. In other words, the center, the gravitational center of Christian hope, the promise and the invitation, hadn't got a mention. And she, she sort of thought this is really strange. And she, it began to dawn on her, and she, and she was very honest and I think very vulnerable about this. She said, you know what? I don't think, as a Christian, I really understand what the resurrection of Jesus Christ really means. In fact, she said, this is a new, this is her words, not mine. She said, this is a new concept for me and I'm gonna to have to wrap my head around this. Well, what she did wasn't unusual. Let me tell you, I've done this. I've done this and, and countless of Christians have done this too. We've, we've, we've done this. And in a way it's only natural because when we don't quite understand the significance and meaning of something, 
right? when something seems a little bit odd and strange. But it, it, we may try for a little bit, not quite sure how it fits, so it will get pushed to the margins of our thought. And so that's with the resurrection, it seems like this strange, clumsy bit of theology, we're not quite sure what to do with it. So it has been pushed to the margins of Christian thinking, the margins of the church's theology, the margins of the church's hope. That's a strange, strange thing to have happened, but there we are. But if we recognize the meaning, the significance of the resurrection, it gets moved to the center of Christian hope. It, once we recognize the meaning of the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection, then regardless of whether you believe it or you don't believe it, whether you believe it or not, we will at least understand why the, the disciples and the authors of the New Testament dared to hope for what they hoped for, because they dared to look back and they dared to believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this shaped their, their future hope. <laughs> but how can we believe this? How dare we believe that someone has been raised from the dead and how, how could we therefore hope Dare to hope for what the New Testament authors hope for, for the future of humanity and the future of creation. How do we hope? And how dare we believe? How can we? Well, of course, as I've said before, we can always pile on the mountains of historical evidence. We could go that route. Yeah, sure. Um, there are mountains of evidence. And yes, I think it is one of the best attested facts in, in ancient history. Absolutely. I can give you thousands of pages if you're if you're that interested we can do that there are people working at oxford who believe in the resurrection of jesus christ not because not because they have a prior a priori commitment to god because they don't they're atheists and they don't they didn't don't have a, a belief in the resurrection because they trust the the authority and trustworthiness of scripture because they don't because they're agnostics they believe in the resurrection for the simple reason that they're really really good historians and they know that when you, when you remove this event, you have too many pieces left over that you don't know what to do with. And you reinsert the resurrection of Jesus Christ back in and, the, and suddenly the whole historical puzzle with, and it's one of those big 10,000, thousand piece puzzles, right? It's, it's one of those thousand piece puzzles. Suddenly, you know what to do with those thousand pieces and they all fit together. So yes, I could blind sort of snow you with all the uh, all the evidence, but I'm, I'm going to finish here with a, a slightly different kind of approach to the question of belief. The philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said, it is love that believes the resurrection. It is love that believes the resurrection. It's a haunting phrase. But what did he mean by that? Well, perhaps he means just this, that when we love, I mean, when we really love someone, the promise of the resurrection becomes clearer and more intense than ever before. Like the young man who looks at his son who has a rare genetic disease, and he says to his friend, as he did just recently, my hope is in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ that promises me that one day my son's body will be restored in the renewed and restored creation. It is love that believes the resurrection, Wittgenstein says. What does he mean by that? 
Perhaps he means that when you love someone, you can hear the invitation of the resurrection with such clarity and with such intensity so that you begin to long for the broken relationships in your life and the broken hearts to be restored and to be healed. So much so that you yourself begin to work on that restoration and for that longed for healing. It is love that believes the resurrection. And through those eyes of love, we can see the resurrection rippling out, in, in, not only into the future, as this un, sort of unstoppable forward movement of this story God is telling, but we can see it ripple out into the universe in which we live and into our hearts, changing us, altering us in the deepest recesses of our hearts, at that deepest level. Wittgenstein says it is love that believes the resurrection. So that all of us, as we one day will stand by the graveside of the people we love the most, broken and utterly devastated by the loss and longing, longing to experience once more all the goodness and all the beauty that they brought into our lives just to be able to see them and feel them near us, to be able to talk with them and dream with them and laugh with them again. Oh, it is love that believes the resurrection so that we dare to look back and see the risen Jesus so that we can look forward to the future and dare to believe that one day God will redeem us from the grave and restore us to each other. Amen.